World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Throughout this series, we will be discussing some of the major global challenges we face. Deforestation to global pandemics. In our first season of World We Got This, we will be speaking with experts about the factors at play during a global pandemic, the differing global perspectives, and ultimately, the way in which we can meet this challenge. This podcast was being planned long before the outbreak of COVID-19, but all that changed just a couple of weeks ago. Now, of course, I'm recording this from home, and everyone we speak to in the coming episodes is also going to be working from home. But the key thing is that they're still working, they're still researching, they're still teaching, and they're still trying to understand how we can wrestle with this global pandemic. Because that is what the podcast is all about. So here we go. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm James Bagley from the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Today's podcast is something slightly different. In addition to our regular episodes, we wanted to have a way to bring you the conversations with individual experts about issues relating to or relating from COVID-19. Even if coronavirus has made the public lecture impossible, we hope these episodes, World We Got This In Conversation, will give us a chance to hear from experts and thinkers about the ideas and issues they believe are shaping our world. Before we get started, I should also say that all our episodes are now available on iTunes as well as Spotify and SoundCloud. Please do rate and review us. It helps us share these conversations with more people. And so on to today's episode. Professor Alfredo Sedfilo is Professor of Political Economy and International Development in the Department of International Development here at King's. We sat down to discuss his recent essay, Coronavirus, Crisis and the End of Neoliberalism. We spoke about why he thinks this moment could bring about a radical change in global economics, but also that why what comes next is far from certain. I started by asking Alfredo how he was doing in lockdown. Everything's going very well. Um, I've been uh, in my flat. Um, I've been working. I've been doing my things. And uh, now the sun is shining outside, so I, I feel okay. I hope, of course, that the um, the lockdown will be lifted at some point when it is safe to do so. Uh, I am concerned about the situation we find ourselves in, in this country and in other countries. But at a personal level, I'm fine. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Um, so... I guess before before we get into the conversation and, and hear about what we're going to hear to talk about today, um, I wanted to kind of, I guess, give away, in, in a sense, the, 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 um, the ending of your essay. Um, so you write um, in your essay, Coronavirus Crisis and the End of Neoliberalism, about how this moment perhaps creates a, a unique moment in time in which our society and, and, our, and our political economy may change. Um, and I guess that phrase neoliberalism, often people come with their own positioning in terms of their own politics in response to it, whether they think this is a conversation that they've heard or a conversation that perhaps they've decided on what they think of neoliberalism. But I think it's important uh, for those listening to say, 
we're going to have a conversation about the economic order that has defined the last 40 years, but also why this moment may mean there's going to be a shift. Um, so I guess to start with, to try and set out what we mean by neoliberalism, you speak in your essay and you've spoken before about these kind of three phases that have defined the last 40 years um, of the global order. Can can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, it is... Neoliberalism is, is an extremely interesting uh, phenomenon uh, for many reasons. One of them is that almost no one uh, calls themselves neoliberal. Uh, the tendency for um, orthodox economists and for people on the right of the political spectrum uh, normally is to try and deny the existence of neoliberalism uh, itself. And neoliberalism has been seen in different ways uh, in the social sciences. It has been seen uh, as a set of ideas. It has been seen as a set of policies. It has been seen as a set of institutions. It has been seen uh, as um, a moment uh, in uh, industrial uh, relations and class conflict. It has been seen as a phase uh, of uh, capitalism. I uh, believe in the... Uh, last uh, interpretation. I think this is a phase, an arrangement, a mode of existence. Now, neoliberalism um, has been through, um, I believe, three phases. Maybe we are entering a fourth phase uh, that remains to be seen. But invariably, if you look at it from a, a kind of historical broad perspective, there is a moment of transition. There is a phase of transition, a shock phase, uh, when um, the state, invariably the state, uh, employs force uh, to push through the reorganization of production, the reorganization of industrial relations, the dismantling of the power of trade unions, the dismantling of the political left, uh, the financialization of social reproduction, the expansion of the role of finance uh, in production and in social uh, reproduction, uh, to shift society, to transform um, social arrangements and sociability in a particular direction. That is invariably a complex, difficult, and conflictual phase. Think Margaret Thatcher in the UK, of course. Think Ronald Reagan in the United States. But also even before that, think General Pinochet in Chile. Think the military dictatorships in Argentina and Uruguay. But then think later the structural adjustment programs in uh, Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa after the international debt crisis in the early uh, and mid-1980s. And then... Uh, even later, think the transitions in Eastern Europe uh, from 1989. Uh, and this historical phase of transition uh, ends, in my view, with the Asian uh, crisis in um, the mid-1990s. Uh, and then we move to a second phase. And of course, these phases, they can, they can overlap, they can be different in different parts of the world, but they serve as templates for us. Um, there's a second phase that is a phase of mature neoliberalism uh, or the third wayest phase of neoliberalism. If you think this phase, you think Bill Clinton, you think Tony Blair, a phase of consolidation of neoliberalism, a phase uh, of uh, stabilization of the new role of finance, of the new ways in which investment, consumption, production and employment uh, were organized in uh, society, a phase of consolidation of what became known in retrospect as globalization when uh, production chains spread around the world, uh, when ownership of productive uh, assets uh, was internationalized, and when we started 
definitively living in a different society. And then associated with this, a new set of social policies compatible uh, with neoliberalism and no longer with the universal type of welfare state that was uh, set up in the West, uh, and particularly in Western Europe uh, after the Second World War. This uh, second phase gets into a severe crisis in 2007-2008. The global financial crisis really shakes up uh, what uh, had existed as the mature form of neoliberalism. And we slide into an ec- a deep economic uh, crisis uh, a- that hadn't had a proper resolution until 2020 when we go into an even deeper economic crisis, but that one hadn't. Uh, been resolved yet, and it is articulated, uh, it comes together with a political crisis and a slide of uh, one country after another into an authoritarian modality of neoliberalism. And that is uh, an extremely uh, serious uh, development uh, that shows that neoliberalism uh, politically has not been stable. And it remains to be seen Uh, to conclude, it remains to be seen what is going to happen to neoliberalism in the economic domain, but also in the political domain after this uh, pandemic. And I fear that there is a possibility of very adverse uh, developments at a global level. And you mentioned there the the financialization of uh, that phase of financialization, which perhaps has caricatured much of the West over the last before 08 but 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 afterwards i mean 08 was seen and i I think at the time um i was a graduate coming out of university and i I remember reading so much and i remember hearing so much about how perhaps this this marked a moment of of drastic change in terms of political economy and it's fair to say we've seen a lot of political change but i wouldn't say necessarily we've seen a huge amount of economic change i mean what, why do you think we may have not seen that, that drastic change that might have been expected following what was a, a, a really big shock uh, to the global economic system in 2008? I think you've got an excellent point there. Um, the crisis of 2008 was a typical crisis of mature neoliberalism. It was a crisis of financialization. It was a crisis that started in the financial sector of the most advanced Uh, neoliberal economy uh, in the world, the largest economy uh, in the world. It spread around the world through financial uh, mechanisms initially, uh, especially among uh, advanced uh, economies in the West, and then it uh, spread to the global south, not primarily through the financial channel, but through the trade channel, suggesting that uh, economies in the global south are less financialized than economies in the global uh, north. Now, there was uh, a tremendous loss of legitimacy of global neoliberalism and of finance and financialization uh, at that moment in time. It was uh, perceived that the idea of finance as the efficient market, um, the exemplary uh, model for other markets to emulate and to follow, uh, and finance as the benevolent set of institutions that would allocate resources impartially and efficiently across the economy, all that uh, idea uh, evaporated. It was uh, perceived that the financial system was made up of uh, inefficient, competing, 
greedy, corrupt uh, institutions led by characters that were absolutely uh, appalling, abhorrent uh, individuals, usually uh, almost invariably male, uh, that were revealed to be completely clueless as to the social impact of their uh, economic activities. There was no magic attached to the finance. In fact, it was shown to be a curse. But as you have uh, pointed out, nothing much changed. Uh, the um, heterodox economists that had been pointing out the distortions of neoliberalism and financialization for several years and that anticipated the crisis, um, they were not uh, listened to. They continued to be marginalized. In fact, states tended to adopt extremely accommodating policies to salvage finance uh, the, the case of the UK is a typical case, and then immediately after not having been challenged by um, heterodox economists because they were not being listened to, they had no space in the media, no capacity to dispute uh, the claims of the orthodoxy, and with the left having been uh, dismantled by and large trade unions, political parties of the left, uh, peasant organizations, national liberations movements uh, in the south, uh, community organizations that are disabled, um, contained by adverse changes in legislation and so on, the left was not in a position uh, to uh, pick up this uh, dispute uh, in with, with any great um, capacity to affect outcomes. So the reaction of most states was to come back with uh, austerity, with fiscal austerity. So we use social resources to save the banks that created the problem in the first place, and now you have to pay for it, you being the poor, you being the people who uh, have had their, uh, their, their salaries uh, in many cases frozen for several decades in real terms in the United States. Real salaries have been um, essentially frozen since the early 1970s. Pay per hour uh, has been basically frozen. Um, and in other countries, uh, the, the wages, especially of the poor, have tended to decline over time. So inequality has tended to mount with the poor losing out and the rich gaining quite a lot under neoliberalism. Neoliberalism uh, is extremely efficient at producing inequality um, and a whole range of inequalities across uh, society. So the delegitimization of neoliberalism and financialization, combined with a lack of capacity uh, of the opposition to do anything much about it, led states to feel that they could offload the cost uh, of salvaging finance onto the welfare states. And then we enter into a decade of austerity um, in order to pay off the additional public debts that were incurred uh, as a consequence of the global financial crisis. And we arrive then at the uh, pandemic of 2020, uh, particularly in the advanced economies in the West and in different ways in the economies in the South, and we can talk about that. But we arrive in an extremely fragile position with a financial system that remained fragile, uh, with states that remained uh, in a perilous financial um, situation in many cases, more indebted than they were before, 
uh, and with lack of legitimacy in the political process, uh, with political instability in several countries, uh, with welfare states that were Uh, that had been eroded uh, over time, particularly in the health sector. The health sector is expensive uh, to maintain. And Britain, in this sense, is is a, a, a very significant example around the world. The NHS is a fantastic service, has enormous legitimacy uh, in the country. It had been degraded for, for the past couple of decades by successive reforms that have tended to marketize the service to try and make it as commercial as possible. Uh, and then when uh, the NHS is confronted uh, with a huge uh, health challenge, it has difficulty uh, responding uh, appropriately. And then the, the, the state itself. One of the major lessons from this pandemic is that the neoliberal restructuring of the state, both before and after the great financial crisis, has led to a loss of state capacity that is directly responsible for the inability of a number of states to respond appropriately to the uh, pandemic itself. The cases of the UK and the USA are very, very revealing in this respect. The case of Brazil is also dramatic in this sense. States that have been deliberately dismantled and rendered incapable of responding appropriately because of the neoliberal reforms because of neoliberal ideology, because of neoliberal institutions. And this has a direct cost in the way these particular countries have been unable to react appropriately and turn themselves into epicenters uh, of the pandemic. So in a sense, the, the capacity that was removed during that period, a great drive uh, to use that phrase, efficiency, um, in places like the US and the UK has meant that those states haven't got the got the state capacity. And I, and I guess I should say that that's not a left and right thing for much of the 20th century, both left and right governments built in a kind of state capacity to deal with problems, perhaps normally of war, but it meant that they could also deal with with kinds of social and, and health problems. So, so have we seen that state capacity, um, the removal of that state capacity kind of be shown to be insufficient, uh, be a real problem in this crisis in those countries that are perhaps in the later stages of neoliberalism? This is an absolutely uh, correct and very important point that you have made. This is not a left-right issue. And you find countries with state capacity uh, being able to address the pandemic in very different ways. What China did was very efficient in their own way. What Vietnam did was extremely efficient in their own way and with very limited economic resources. Vietnam is a poor country. What Taiwan did, what Hong Kong did, what South Korea did, these are countries that did well uh, in the East. And in the West, you find other countries that also did well. Germany did well, Greece did well, Portugal did well. And in contrast, Italy and Spain and the UK and particularly the USA did extremely badly. Now, other countries, Ecuador, Brazil, etc., also did very, very badly. So the issue is not if your government is on the left or the right, more or less democratic. We would all like to be able to say democracies do better than authoritarian regimes. It is not correct. This is not what is revealed. But it's neither it is, is it the case that uh, authoritarian regimes did better. 
Each country responded in their own way. We are all laboratories now. Every country is a laboratory. We have no experience dealing with uh, a challenge uh, like this uh, current pandemic. So countries have responded in different ways. We will be able to evaluate their responses. But one very clear outcome, absolutely clear right now, is that without state capacity, without state resilience, without planning, without capacity for implementation, without legitimacy of the state, it is impossible to minimize the loss of life. In countries where states had capacity, planning, prompt intervention, legitimacy, uh, and where people were paying attention to guidance uh, coming from a central government, then those states have been more successful containing the pandemic and saving people's lives, which is has to be the central goal of any government at this moment in time. And, ju- and just to just to go back to that point, that that point after 08, where we saw huge financial crisis and and the p- political implications of that, um, both in terms of the austerity and the squeeze on living standards. We, I think, a lot of people will now say that that produced many of the political earthquakes whether that's Donald Trump in the United States, uh, Bolsonaro in in Brazil. But one thing you mention in your work is that actually these national movements have joined with neoliberalism or with the the leaders of neoliberalism um, to to respond and and kind of have these uh, political moments. So Bolsonaro is is partnered with neoliberals in in his rise to power. So... Have we seen that post-08? So did we see a kind of coming together of, of a new form of neoliberalism that's linked to nationalism as a way to maintain its uh, hegemony? This is a very difficult uh, issue. There is a paradox in the uh, political crisis of neoliberalism uh, coming out of the great financial crisis. We find economies that have been unable to recover fully Uh, that have remained financialized and dysfunctional. We see a global uh, capitalist system that is uh, less and less able to deliver economic growth, jobs growth, uh, and income growth. We see that for the past five decades, decade on decade, um, the world economy has tended to grow more and more slowly. There is a creeping stagnation of the world economy, and this was accelerated after the great financial crisis. At the same time, the spread of neoliberalism reorganized production and it reorganized societies around the world. In the case of the advanced economies in the West, this has led to the creation of what I call a whole social strata of losers uh, from neoliberalism, economic losers, people who lost their jobs as uh, countries de-industrialized. This is particularly clear in the UK and the United States. People who lost their jobs as states retrenched, as uh, state-owned uh, enterprises were privatized. People who lost their jobs as entire industries were either ceased to exist because of technological change or because they were exported uh, abroad. A very large proportion, more than half of US workers have been threatened with the migration of their firm uh, abroad should they uh, require uh, requests or demand higher uh, higher wages. This may or may not be realistic that the firm would actually move, but this is a, a very significant uh, threat uh, to wield against uh, your own 
um, your own workers. So for workers that used to be stereotypically blue-collar workers in stable jobs, usually male, with a pension plan, with stable jobs, with prospects of promotion, with the security that their children would do better than they themselves did in economic terms, this has been a massive uh, coup. This has been a massive disappointment to watch uh, the disintegration of their industries, uh, to realize that their children will not, for the first time in well over 100 years, children will do worse than their parents in the economic domain across the West. And this has uh, led to a huge amount of frustration uh, building up. Now, since the collective movements had been dismantled in the previous phase of neoliberalism, and since the left had been disabled, this dissatisfaction remained very loose, and it has been polarized by the far right. Now, it was polarized by the far right, not in, with, with exceptions, uh, take India or take Turkey, but in general, it has been polarized by a far right that is also disorganized and that is led by spectacular politicians, people with flair, people with charm, people coming from the far right and implementing a political program that is associated with neoliberalism and with orthodoxy and with the far right, but pretending to be doing otherwise. Uh, Donald Trump is a clear example of that. Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, but also Boris Johnson. Flamboyant types that have personal charisma uh, but that and that uh, reach positions of power promising to confront neoliberalism and the tragedies that neoliberalism has unleashed, the tragedy of a state that is unresponsive, the tragedy of the insufficiency uh, of public services. Remember the £350 million pounds uh, a week that would be devoted to the NHS. Uh, they would address the scarcity that had been created and the challenges that had been imposed on the nation. This is a very general thing. But those challenges, who created those challenges in this discourse? The challenges are always coming from the outside. They come from foreign countries. Uh, the challenges come from foreign countries who stole uh, our industries. They come from immigrants who come in to steal our jobs, to steal our housing, to steal our hospitals. Uh, they are always coming from outside. They also come from a corrupt political elite at the top. So you are represented, uh, if you're a member of this particular group of dissatisfied people who feel they have lost out on the neoliberalism, you're represented as being under siege. You're, re you're under siege from abroad, you're under siege from below, uh, from the undeserving poor that are taking away what rightly should belong to you. Uh, you're under siege from immigrants that are coming from outside and, and penetrating your society. You're, you're under siege from the top because of uh, politicians that steal your money. So it's, it tends to be then a reaction, or this tends to lead to a reaction of fury, of disorganized fury and projection of your hopes and dreams and frustrations and expectations onto those spectacular personalities who say, give me power and I will sort out the problem. Look at me. In some cases, um, I am a successful uh, businessman. It's usually a man, of course. I'm a successful businessman. I can resolve problems. Vote for me and I can resolve the problem of the state. Now, when these personalities come to power, and this is a fundamental problem, I believe, when they come to power, they do not implement the uh, economic uh, program that they had 
uh, being elected on. They tend to radicalize and accelerate and intensify a neoliberal program, a program of uh, tax cuts, a program of uh, retrenching the welfare state, a program uh, of intensified deindustrialization. That will feed a disorganized sense of frustration amongst their own electoral base. So my um, hypothesis before the pandemic was this is a politics of resentment that is intrinsically unstable. It is not possible to stabilize political systems on this basis of um, spectacular leaders being elected by disorganized movements and then implementing programs that harm their own electoral base. This will lead to problems, and the problem is fairly clear. The left continues to be inert or disabled. The problem is the resurgent of a far right that is much more aggressive even than the movements associated with these uh, with these disor- or di- disorganized movements associated with these political leaders. So the danger was the emergence of fascism. Now, the pandemic comes onto this, fra- uh, onto this fragile economy and this fragile political system. And while I hope, I very much hope, that the experience of this pandemic will be unforgettable and it will lead people to reflect on what really matters in life. And one of the things that really matters in life is to have decent public services, to be certain that you will be looked after if you fall sick, to uh, be certain that we live in a collectivity and we we have to look at the other and treat other people with respect and consideration because we all live within this a sea of individuals with whom we share so many things. So I was hoping for, or I still hope for, a collective response to this. But there is a possibility that is much more negative. It is of states resorting to authoritarian measures uh, under the guise of the pandemic and then abusing those powers. Look at Hungary, for example, these days. Uh, then abusing those powers, not dismantling the security apparatus of the pandemic, of drawing on those lessons to repress politically their societies, and then imposing uh, policies of austerity even more radical than the ones that uh, were in place uh, before. That would accelerate, I fear, the the rise of um, these uh, new fascist uh, movements. And so we may see the end of neoliberalism, as it, as it says in your article, but we don't yet know what might replace that. We do not know what might replace that. This will depend on the strength of the organization and the strength of the movements demanding a future uh, that is different from the past, a future that is not subject to the whims of finance, a future that um, will involve states with greater capacity and consideration for the poor and the vulnerable, a greater consideration for life itself. If you remember the debate about uh, herd immunity uh, in this country and in other countries tended to slide into an incredibly callous and inconsiderate uh, view that the lives of the vulnerable are expendable. No, they are not. They deserve just as much consideration as every other uh, life. And we want a state and a political system that reflects this consideration, this, this intrinsic innate equality between all human beings. And that is the positive um, response that I think is possible, is plausible um, at this moment in time. But once again, 
um, this type of uh, response based on solidarity, based on human rights, uh, based on uh, welfare for all, this response is not the default response of the neoliberal state. We do have a problem, we do, we do have a challenge, we have possibilities, but it is not easy. This is a difficult challenge for all of us. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Alfredo. Thank you so much, James. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to the podcast World We Got This, brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. To find out more about the podcast and our work, head to our website, kcl.ac.uk forward slash world we got this. Here you'll find a full list of further reading materials. This podcast has been produced by James Bagley and Julia Stepawoska, with editing by Rachel Wall. To help us reach more people, please rate and review us in iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, remember, world, we got this.